we are taking up this Baptist distinctive of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I did already last week give you the footnote, if you please, caveat maybe, that we, uh, we don't claim that we are the only ones that observe this this uh, ordinance and it is not listed as a Baptist distinctive purely because we observe the ordinance but it is the peculiarities the specificity with which we observe it the things that we bring to our doctrine of the Lord's Supper that makes us to be makes it distinct for us but I wanted to back up just one little bit, uh, go back on this matter of baptism I had mentioned, uh, just very briefly because it's not a field of study for me, uh, the matter of pedo-baptism, uh, infant baptism requires by by definition, if one holds to that, it would require that they also believe in Pado communion. Uh, and most, most Pado Baptists do not. But this is a subject, and I did mention it before, that this is a subject where Luke has had a, a particular, uh, insight, has insight because of a very personal relationship that he had with a young man his age who uh, underwent this this uh, controversy and so forth, and I had said that I would like for him to say just a few words to you, uh, not so much about his friend's experience, maybe that too, but primarily just to to cast in your mind rightly uh, a better understanding of what exactly the controversy is there, and and why it dictates. Uh, of being addressed by those who who hold to infant baptism. So I've asked Luke if he will come just share just a little bit of that with us. A little bit is all I have, really, because uh, we have we'd be going back over and covering so much ground we've already covered. Just suffice to say, for just for those that are not familiar, there is something of an old discussion over whether or not those who practice paedo-baptism should also pra practice paedo-communion. If we baptize the babies, why not, why not also allow them participate, to participate in communion? <laughs> this was the discussion. In a sense, it backfired with my old friend, college friend, uh, who was a member of Moorcraft's church, Orthodox Presbyterian from North Atlanta, Pretty large and influential group. They still are. Um, Joe Moorcraft is still in the ministry, and and uh, I got to know him a little bit through my friend. He is he is uh, he is quite a historian and and uh, an educated man. A nice, just a southern gentleman. He's a nice fellow. He really is. But he is Orthodox Presbyterian. And in my debates back and forth with my friend, who was a member of Moorcraft's church, over the issue of infant baptism which went on for some four years I uh, could see that 
we were not going to make any headway in his jumping ship and uh, converting to the Baptist position. So I didn't expect him to do. But I did take another angle after about four years and, and start asking questions like, well, if you're going to be consistent with your position, why do you not have uh, a spouse paid communion? Well, that kind of threw him off a little bit. And um, he made some arguments which went on for some months uh, to which I had replies and he had replies and I had replies. And then it fell silent after some time. He called me, though, and he said, I'd like you to know um, congratulations on what? Um, well, mission accomplished. I said, well, you're a Baptist now? Uh, no, I have uh, I've seen the consistency of your argumentation, and I believe that Pato communion is the only consistent position for a Pato Baptist. <laughs> So he later left Moorcraft's church and they became a part of a Presbyterian church in Atlanta. And that's another thing. Some of us may, maybe you have not crossed somebody who practices infant com communion, but this is not a something that happens over in Greece. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church has practiced Pato communion for a very long time. This is something happening in our state. Um, so my friend ended up at another church where they do practice Pato communion. And that was one of the biggest reasons why. To demonstrate that it's not an old issue, though, I want to read you a quote, which I forgive me for being ultra modern, but I, I didn't know how much time I might have. And to prevent bringing a wheelbarrow load of books, I'll read this quote from, from a digital copy. If you want the reference, it is uh, Calvin's Institutes. I believe it is uh, book four, chapter 16. Calvin, who is a brilliant man and a great logician, just to demonstrate what our Pado baptist brethren, how they show their feet to be feet of clay. This man who was brilliant and a great logician has this to say. At length, they object. He's talking about those Anabaptist sectarian people. They object that there is not greater reason for admitting infants to baptism than to the Lord's Supper, to which, however, they are never admitted. As if Scripture did not in every way draw a wide distinction between them. In the early church, indeed, the Lord's Supper was frequently given to infants. What he's referring to is the fact that from about, correct me if I'm wrong, Brother Gormley, but I believe it was from the mid-200s for about 600 years, most of the church practiced Pado communion. Uh, Augustine refers to it. Uh, so Calvin says the Lord's Supper was frequently given to infants as appears from Cyprian and Augustine, but the practice justly became obsolete in the uh, 12th century, I believe it was. For if we attend to the particular nature, if we attend to the peculiar nature of baptism, it is a kind of entrance and as it were, initiation into the church. Listen to this next quote because it is further proof of what the pastor said when the subject first came up, that they may say, oh no, we don't believe there's baptismal regeneration. Well, listen to Calvin. Baptism, he says, is an initiation into the church by which we are ranked among the people of God, a sign of our spiritual regeneration by which we are again 
born to be children of God. Whereas, on the contrary, the supper is intended for those of riper years. And if you'll listen from here now, what he says is correct. This is a Baptist argument. The supper is intended for those of riper years who, having passed the tender period of infancy, are fit to bear solid food. The distinction is very clearly pointed out in Scripture, for there, as regards baptism, the Lord makes no selection of age. That is true. Whereas he does not admit all to partake of the supper. Very true. But confines it to those who are fit to discern the body and blood of the Lord, to examine their own conscience, to show forth the Lord's death and understand its power. Can we wish anything clearer than what the apostle says when he thus exhorts, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examination therefore must precede and this it were vain to expect from infants. Amen. Again, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. If they cannot partake worthily without being able duly to discern the sanctity of the Lord's body, why should we stretch out poison to our young children instead of vivifying food? Then what is our Lord's injunction? Do this in remembrance of me. See, these are all arguments we would make as to why children should not participate in the, uh, or rather infants in communion, because they cannot fit, fulfill these requirements. The Lord's injunction is, do this in remembrance of me. And what's the inference which the apostle draws from this? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. How, pray, can we require infants to commemorate any event of which they have no understanding? Which we would say applies equally to baptism. But he is right. This is true about, about communion in particular. How um, can we require infants to commemorate any event of which they have no understanding? How can we require them to show forth the Lord's death of the nature and benefit of which they have no idea? Nothing of the kind is prescribed by baptism. He says, says Calvin. Um, wherefore, there is the greatest difference between the two signs. This also we observe in similar signs under the old dispensation. All right. Circumcision, and here's where he has feet of clay, because a man who is known for his precision and thinking commits, goes on to commit, begging the question and ends it with what we would call informal debate and abusive ad hominem. It's just a personal attack intended to distract from the fact that he doesn't have any proof. He says circumcision, which as is well known, corresponds to our baptism. Was intended for infants. But the Passover for which the supper is substituted, did not admit all kinds of guests promiscuously, but was duly eaten only by those who were of an age sufficient to ask the meaning of it. Had these men, the Baptist, 
the least particle of soundness in their brain, would they be thus blind as to a matter so clear and obvious? What in the world is that personal attack except something to distract from the fact he has not yet offered any support for these things he's taking for granted? By the way, that references Exodus 12 and 26 when the Passover is being spoken about there. You'll recall the passage so that when your... Um, well, let me read it exactly so I don't misquote it. Exodus 12, 26. And it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? One thing you'll want to pay attention to, you students, especially when you're talking to paedo-communionists or paedo-baptists, is the way that they will make a positive commandment off of something that is not expressly stated. This verse says, when your children shall say. This verse has nothing to do with a positive ordinance to involve females in the partaking of the Passover. It has nothing to say about age whatsoever. This verse, it doesn't. Nothing to do with any of that. That particular verse that he quotes but he support he uses that verse to support um, this uh, claim that the Lord's Supper should be participated in by those who are able to ask. Therefore, the implication is that they have understanding. Well, <clears throat> what would you say to Calvin? I said to my friend, in the words of the Westminster Confession, chapter twenty nine. Of the Lord's Supper, paragraph one. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church. So my contention to my friend was, is this or is this not positive institution, a command to the church of Christ. Yes. If that child is baptized and by that baptism becomes a member of that church, on what grounds do the obligation not fall on them to follow Christ in obedience in communion? That point was one of the things that drove him to, to go to Pato Communion because he would not turn loose and, and, and off apart from grace they want. But when they are unwilling, and this is what we try to show our brethren who have this position, when you're unwilling to turn loose of the claim that baptism of that infant brings them into the church, then they are under the obligation to the ordinances delivered to the church. And it is, in a, it is a command that the church, this is an institution in the words of their own con confession, to be observed by the church. So that infant is a member of the church. That infant must be participating in the ordinances of the church. You heard Calvin's response. His response was, y'all are a bunch of stupid Baptists and you're sick in the brain. Why would you even ask that question? Um, okay. 
we love you too, Calvin. But the fact of the matter is that all of those things that apply to the Lord's Supper, we would argue apply to the issue of, uh, of baptism. Where, as we have belabored the point here in these classes, where in Scripture do we find any anything but support for the belief that baptism is a thing to be entered into with understanding, following repentance, in obedience, knowingly, as an act of faith. These are not these are not things that an infant can do. So how is that applicable to the Lord's Supper? And it is not applicable to baptism. Well, of course, we know why. It's because they must at all costs hold on to their precious, precious institution of infant baptism at all costs. And unfortunately, you see the cost to which they will go because even an intellectual giant like Calvin can be found saying some of the most ludicrous things. But it is in an effort to hold on to this precious item of infant baptism. That's sad. That's sad. In a nutshell, that's it. <coughs> Go to all lengths to hold on to their infant baptism. Luke made the point that it's well, 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 well made that there is nothing that can be said by a fatal Baptist about <coughs> in, in, uh, in the denying infant communion that cannot be equally applied to infant baptism. In short, as we would say as Baptists, they simply have no scripture for it. Period. Have no scripture for it. And it's our insistence on the scripture being the only guide is why we deny it. I feel a permission too that my friend is the wonderful case study because after having patting me on the back and essentially congratulating me for helping him to be more consistent, I went on to ask, well, if you do now believe that a child must participate in communion in order to be faithful to the requirements of a member of the church of Christ, then that child needs also to participate in the governance of that church and be subject to discipline. Mm -hmm. And his response to that was, all he did was push the pee along the table, and this is what there you go. Well, thank you. There you so go. In other words, they cannot be a faithful functioning member of the church. Hmm. Not subject to its discipline, nor to its government. Such is the morass into which you sink. Once you part from words of scripture, John, you have something? Well, go back to our beginnings. As I call it, my favorite author on, on this subject, uh, those of you who have read Dr. Baldwin's work will perhaps remember these words. Uh, very much along the same line with what Luke has said already. Uh, Another consequence arising from the premises laid down by our brethren is that infants, if admitted to baptism, have an undoubted right to all the other privileges of the Gospel Church. 
It is conceived that no reason can be assigned why a person who is qualified for one ordinance is not equally qualified for another. And then he takes up this discussion of uh, an answer to Mr. Calvin's statement regarding circumcision and uh, Passover. No distinction, no distinction has been made under any dispensation. Circumcision was the principal qualifying prerequisite for communion in the Paschal Feast and for all the privileges of complete membership in the Jewish church. Under the gospel dispensation, they that gladly received the word were baptized, added to the church, and then united in breaking bread. Do pedo-baptists admit all such as they baptized in their infancy to a participation in all the privileges of the Christian church? It is well known they do not, and yet consistency most plainly requires it. In order to carry a point against Baptists, Dr. Baldwin, they insist upon it that their baptized infants are church members. But their practice tells everybody that they believe no such thing. Mm -hmm. We appeal to common observation. Do they constantly bring their children to the communion table? Do they maintain any church discipline over them? Are they permitted to vote and act in church matters? Are there any instances in which the profane and licentious have been the subjects of church censure? A silent negative must be given to all these questions. From the general conduct of the churches that hold infant baptism, a candid mind would naturally suppose that the membership of infants, if it ever existed, ceased as soon as they were baptized. <laughs> Absolutely. Blessed Bola. What a thing. Any other comments or questions? Well, in the discussion of baptism proper, Points were made by you and Mr. Walker both about the fact that there's a breakdown in likeness with God. If baptism does stand in the room of or replace circumcision, why why must a minister why must a minister administer baptism when an uncle might administer circumcision? There are so many things Yeah, inconsistencies, right. yeah. But the same thing is true of the Passover. Because to my knowledge, it wasn't until the 200s in Talmudic tradition that there was express command for girls to participate in the Passover. And if you go back and read the Old Testament, we take for granted that all the family gathers around, you know, the old Sunday school lecture shows little girls eating and everything. Yeah. That's not, if you go back and read the passages in Exodus and Genesis and what have you, the Levitical law, there's no mention. Now, fair enough, it doesn't say girls shall not eat. But we'll have to read into it that girls were required to eat. What we do know about express command is that you were not qualified to eat the Passover until you were circumcised. Can you tell me what that means? Now, if that's the case, there's another portion which the Pale Baptist doctrine doesn't work. 
because if the Lord's Supper crosses over from Passover, then only boys should be eating. Boys look in the backwards. It's just another point where there's a chink in their arm. Mm-hmm. That, that goes to Dr. Baldwin's description of, of the, the definition, if you will, of, of infant baptism. That it, it has this marvelous elasticity to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not so large that it takes in servants of the household. Nor is it so small that it excludes females. It's as old locks that they are just right <laughs> that it allows infants, male and female, to now be baptized uh, in, in the same manner as circumcision did, except that it Hope somebody doesn't write us and tell us they got this lecture on the internet and they're surprised to find the Baptist church is now referring to Goldilocks for their doctrine. <laughs> but it is true what you say. It is absolutely true. I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's so easy, I think, seems to me, that it's so easy for me, having been born and reared a Baptist in Baptist churches under Baptist doctrine, blah, blah, blah. It's so easy for me to see these things. And Luke used the phrase, the chink in the armor. There's there's so much. There's so many inconsistencies. So much, so many chinks. And that's so easy for me to see. But we have to say, we have to, we have to remind ourselves that those who are born and reared in generations of pedo-baptists, these things are not apparent at all. Not at all apparent. And when they're brought to their attention, uh, only those who are sincerely seeking truth will ever come to it. Because if you're only a traditional Christian, you're just Christian by, by name and, and by tradition, by inheritance, you're not going to see these things. We can see them to the point that we can even at times find some humor in it. But those who are reared in it, cannot. And it's very serious with them. It's very serious with them. They honestly fear for their children lest they should die before baptism because they honestly believe that it is a source of regeneration. And they have every reason to believe it. The Westminster specifically states it. And of course Calvin and others have clearly stated it as we heard today. So it's a, it's a, it's a serious matter with them. It's a very serious matter. But it's the old era of Rome. It's really the old Rome, Romish era, and it was designed to have power over people, control. If you control whether they're heaven or hell, control, control their destiny, you control that people. At least certainly did for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. <clears throat> still does in some places. One other, in, in relation to what you just said, one other point that Luke alluded to regarding this, this historical practice of infant and that is correct. The, the church, uh, divine broadly, did allow infants for, for, for 
permit uh, the courage, the words of life, uh, infants to be brought to communion, up to, and Dr. Baldwin makes this point, up to the point that the doctrine of transubstantiation was promulgated by the church. Uh -huh. At that point, they cut it off because they said at that point that they couldn't understand the mysteries involved mm -hmm. in this miracle that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't participate in it uh, knowingly. Therefore, that's the point they cut it off. And, and that historically, was that is a provable fact. Yeah, yeah. And what is that? That that day, I mean, some people may think some of you who didn't come have if you grew up Roman Catholic, you would know a little better, but if you didn't, you might not. That, that several doctrines in the Catholic Church evolved. They have a, they have a, there's a, you can put a pin on a timeline, like John said, an exact date where that doctrine came to be. Uh, it, it, all things that the Catholic Church believes, they, they weren't from the beginning. These things came along the way. I mean, papal authority, etc. But what, what was the, how long, what was the date approximately? Does anybody know on that when the trans, doctrine of transubstantiation was introduced? I mean, how long had the Catholic Church been? Uh, I believe Luke made reference to the cross century. I, I think that's correct. Yeah. Uh, well, so, so we're talking way down the road, way down before that doctrine was even held. Yeah, 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 and that—that that, as I say, I want to emphasize that to us here because most of us did not come from a Roman Catholic background, and we do need to understand that Romanism, as it stands today, uh, has developed. It's—it's it's not been all the doctrines they embrace have not been held all the way from the beginning. And they've been adopted along the way, and, and it's important for us to know that. And sometimes that helps us in dealing with the Roman Catholic, because if they try to hang to a particular doctrine, one or the other, we can we can press them with the fact, well, wait a minute, your church didn't even hold to that. Under, oh, wait, they didn't know. They didn't know that they didn't know that their church didn't always hold these things. And uh, it's a good point for us to... to Remember, Roman Catholic Church. And it's still, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see, it's still morphing. Because, I mean, there are things being considered to be changed right now that have stood for hundreds of years. <laughs> so their doctrine is still in a state of flux and, and, ten, and, and is subject to being altered. Even though it has been held as, you know, absolute authority for hundreds of years, then they've come along and changed it. And so was the case with, uh, uh, infant baptism. I did, I did know that. I knew that part of the history. But I did not, I had never tied it to the fact that the introduction of transubstantiation, that that changed the whole picture for it, for, for them with regards to Infant uh, communion. Of course, it would, wouldn't it? In the word we said for the young men too. And I know that uh, all of us, all of us, uh, aging thirty-year-olds, 
we've all had our day branching swords and trying to set everybody right. You know, and our fears about that. And hopefully we want to not say it, but one thing that's difficult, you become better at experience. It really is a powerful weapon to make denigrating personal assaults. It really is. It messes you up. It's unnerving. Yeah. 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 But it is frequently important. And even, even it's hinted at in that quote from uh, Calvin I did. Uh, you sit brain a bunch of morons. I mean, how can you even ask that question? That kind of personal assault. What, what does, serves us well is to, to put all of that aside But you're right, it becoming inflammatory and assaulting, it is in fact an effective weapon. It's very disconcerting and throws people off. And I was thinking as you were saying that, it's not just in our dealings with Catholic, Roman Catholics, or Pado Baptist, or any other era. It's not just those that we would normally think of. Uh, those of us who came out of fundamentalist ranks, we find them often employing the same technique when they get their backs put to a wall and the fact is they have no biblical argument. They can't respond to a biblical argument. They become inflammatory and, and get angry and, and start raging and <laughs> throwing out insults rather than taking up the subject and trying to answer it. It's not just Roman Catholics that do that. You know, American fundamentalists do that. I mean, anybody in error. Uh, one of the biggest uh, indicators of, of a people anywhere, anywhere, any generation, one of the biggest indicators of a people who are indeed walking in truth is that they are open in seeking truth. They're open. They're not, they're not offended. They're not given fright. They're 
willing to hear and entertain truth and arguments and different people and what they have to say. And I remember vividly as in my earliest days in fundamentalism, I mean, we were basically given a list of books and or authors that it was it was tantamount to, to blasphemy of the Holy Ghost to read these. It's like, don't even don't even go there. Don't even touch these books. They have demons on them. I mean, it sounds ludicrous now, but it was very serious at the time. And as a young Christian, I, I took it very seriously. But that's, that's an indication of, of people who are in a position of error. People who are walking in light have no fear of light. They're very glad to open the windows and show light and, and ready to be taught. Very ready to be taught. And uh, that's, that's, that's been true throughout history. It's still true today. And so we don't just find that among in our dealings with Roman Catholics, sometimes we find it in our dealings with fellow Baptists. <laughs> they use that technique of uh, name-calling and uh, ugliness. All right, wonderful discussion, wonderful discussion. Good, sound doctrine. Any further questions or comments? I did say to you at the outset of this series that we didn't mean it to, we, we want to bring some lectures but that it's an open forum, it's, it's a class, it's not a service, it's a class, and we want it to be open for discussion at any time. All right, if not, we'll just, uh, we'll pick it up there next week. We didn't get to our subject of the Lord's Supper at all, except as it related to baptism. Uh, we'll pick that up there next week again. And uh, in uh, Kroll's, Manual, church manual. <clears throat> I wanted to finish up some very basics with Kroll before we get over on into some controversy.